Hello and welcome to the podcast, Life Changes You. I would like to say a big thank you to everyone listening around the world. The podcast is in Melbourne, Australia. However, we now have people listening in the UK, America, Germany, France, Italy, Singapore and China. Today, I have another conversation for you. I would like to introduce you to Amanda, who has had a pretty busy life. She's worked in disability and has a son with autism. I thought it was important to speak with Amanda about her life and how she stays positive. So hello, Amanda. How are you? Good, thanks, Dan. How are you? Good, thank you. So would you like to give us a bit of an overview of what you've done in your career? Okay. Well, first of all, when I first left school, I worked in a bank. Yep. Then I worked in a building company. Yeah. Then Were you a I builder? Became, pardon? Were you a builder? Uh, no, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> um, and then I worked as a teacher's aide for four years. Yeah. And then I moved over to the disability sector and, and now a support coordinator. Okay, so where did you start in disability? Did you start as a support worker and then work up or did you go straight into management in disability? No, just straight into the management part of it. Okay. So when yeah. did you start in disability then? What, how old do you think you were or what year do you think it was? Um, it was actually three years ago next month. Oh, wow. So you're quite new to disability. Yes. yes. Wow. <laughs> and before that, so you worked in a bank and you worked for a building company. And as a teacher's aide. Oh, that's so right. I yeah. did work with yeah, kids with special needs. So, yeah. Yeah, and how do you find, so we're now under the NDIS, which is the National Disability Insurance Scheme. How do you find working under that? Um, it has its good points and bad points. Yeah. You know, I think it's great that it's there so people can get support. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's hard being the middle person, but overall I think it's been a positive thing for people out there. Yeah. Do you ever feel like you might be like the referee between the participant who wants what they need and the government who is like saying, yes, uh, something unnecessary? Oh, reasonable and necessary. Reasonable and necessary. Do you find that it's hard to fight for the participant in what you feel is reasonable and necessary and what the government thinks is reasonable and necessary? Yes, I do. But I think over time you learn to um, word it the correct way so it, it it shows that it is reasonable and necessary yeah yeah because yeah at the start for me it was very hard to do that because you know it was an all new learning thing for me but yeah. yeah I think over time you get to learn how to put things to the NDIS in a way that they're happy with yeah correct <laughs> yeah because <laughs> yeah, I, I know through my own experience when I've needed to get things for people um, they can have something, and I'm not going to say what the things are, but if you want this and you word it like this, it's fine. But if you to, uh, were to ask for it as it is, then it would be, no, 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 we don't pay that. That's correct, yeah. Yeah. So what do you feel is the most important part about being a support coordinator, like coordinating all the supports for the participant? I think it's sort of being that person that's always there to help. Yep. Like I can remember having a support coordinator myself yep. for my son and I guess the the most important thing to me at that time was having someone to talk to, to ask for advice, yep. you know, if and, you know, for services that were out there that I wasn't sure of. Yeah. So I guess it's, you know, being able to help the person find services but not only that, 
to see them enjoying, you know, getting out into the community and participating in things that they actually enjoy. Yeah, yeah, and that they probably haven't ever had the chance to do before. Yeah, correct, yeah. And it must be hard for you as well as a support coordinator to be able to um, to to find businesses and then weed out the ones that aren't so good so that you're only ever saying, oh, well, this one's actually good and they do this and this, you know, because you must have a lot of people come forward and say, oh, we've got this business and you try them and then you go, oh, actually, they weren't as good as I thought they would be. Yeah, I, I found um, quite often that you find someone that, a provider that's really good, but then everyone else finds out they're really good. <laughs> and then and you then can't get, get their service. <laughs> with people and then they just fall apart because they can't deal with the pressure of oh, okay. all these new participants coming on board. Yeah. So they sort of go like start off really great, go down and then realise, okay, we need to do something different here because yeah. we've got so many people on board and then they go back up again. Okay, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I found that a few times and um, it's – Really hard to because you have to find um, people that match with certain people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because they have to actually, you know, feel comfortable. Yeah, I mean, you're really, you're trying to uh, match personality with personality. Correct, yeah. 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 Because, look, I mean, there's so many different people out there working in disability and they're all great in their own way, but if you don't actually match on a personality scale, then it just doesn't work, does it? It doesn't mesh. That's correct, yeah. So do you find that there's still lots of options of new providers coming in with new ideas or are they all sort of repeating the same sort of thing? Yeah, I think they're repeating the same sort of thing. So there hasn't been any, which I guess in a way is okay because it's what people need. Yeah. So, you know, it's got, you know, your day programs, your support workers, therapies, all that sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, pretty much. I haven't really noticed anything new. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it's going well. I mean, from my point of view, I think there's, for the two people I, I find supports with, um, they've been able to do things that they never would have been able to do without the NDIS and support coordinators who find these things and say, hey, they'd like to try something like this um, yeah. before it was so rigid and what they would pay out on. Well, well, before NDIS came in, you would get a package per person and you would sort of be told what you could spend that on, which is yes. still with the NDIS, but it's made it a lot bigger and a lot more broader with a lot more things that they can try. Yes, definitely, 100%. Yeah. That has, yeah. So... Um, you have a child with autism who's quite young. Um, how did things change for you when you realised your son had autism? Well, I didn't even know what autism was. Okay. Yep. Yeah, when my son was diagnosed. So it was a huge learning curve for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I did I probably what everyone else does, you know, burst into tears and, you know, the first three days or so, was why it happened to me and yeah. all that sort of thing. And um, then I just, he was um, linked into an early intervention centre. Yeah. Which was fantastic. You know, I was pretty much at that intervention centre nearly every day learning as much as I could about autism. Yeah. Um, my son was uh, diagnosed as nonverbal. Yeah. And he was diagnosed back when he was three. Um, he's now 11. And he's... Um, actually speaking now, which is great. Yeah. You know, you know, minimal words, but 
um, still, you know, talking so that we know what he's talking about. Yeah. I guess it's um, it has a huge impact on the family as a whole. Yeah. My husband and I don't actually, I can't remember the last time we went out for dinner together. Right. So, yeah, it, it, it definitely has a huge impact on how the family operates and, you know, even to take my, when he was younger, he used to have meltdowns because he couldn't verbalise what he was feeling or anything like that. So, you know, to take my daughter to school was a nightmare because he wanted to go in the park, in the playground, but he couldn't because the kids were there and he was just having a meltdown. And, you know, just you have to, you know, learn a whole new way of thinking. I remember, you know, going to his um, therapist and saying he just keeps on drawing on the walls with permanent marker and um you know i don't know how to tell him to stop and she said well you need to redo the do things differently so when he draws on there give him a piece of paper and say no walls paper yeah so you know you know it's a whole new way of thinking and doing it you know when you would with a normal child yeah like i just tell my daughter not to draw on the wall or yep. she'd get in trouble whereas yeah. with him it's yeah now you have to explain it all differently yeah yeah yeah. But yeah and is that what led you to go into disability yeah it did and i think you know i've always i guess when i was in primary school you know i was always in the first aid room helping out younger kids that had hurt themselves and stuff so i think i've always had that and when I first originally left school, I, I did nursing for a year. Okay. So I think I've sort of always had that in me to care for people. Nurturing. And, yeah, help people. So, yeah. and then, you know, when my son was diagnosed with autism and, you know, I worked at the school and things like that, it, you know, push it. I want to do more. Yep. So, yeah. And, and you said that um, when it first happened, you said, like, why has it happened to me? What sort of strain did that put on your relationship with your husband then? Um, my husband is very, keeps to himself, so I guess, you know, and I guess it's normal, like friends and all that sort of always ask the wife how they're feeling and how they're coping with it all and not necessarily ask the husband how they're actually coping with it. And I actually think back now, I don't even think I asked him how he was coping with it. I was too um, wrapped up in how I was feeling and yeah stuff like that so um yeah it did put a strain on our marriage because i guess because i went to all the training stuff yeah and he didn't i would come home and he would say he's just being naughty and try and discipline him this way and i'd say but that's not how you have to do it you have to do it this (laughs) way so and then he he's just trying to do the best he can and you're coming back and saying no you don't do it this way you have to do it this way and he's then probably thinking oh my well i was trying my best (laughs) and you've learned it all but then i guess he didn't want to go and learn it yeah yeah Yeah. and i suppose and he was working full-time at that time as well so um, but now we have come to, you know, we both know how to, you know, deal with him and talk with him and yep. calm him down if he's upset and stuff like that. So it's taken us a few years, but we've finally got to an equal <laughs> part where we can both do it at the same time. So how did you explain to him, to your son, about COVID-19 and when things all just stopped and everything shut down? How did he handle that? Well, the school was really good because um, he goes to an autistic school. So um, 
they had provided, sent emailed out social stories, you know, with pictures explaining what the what why he wasn't going to school and you know, calendars with, you know, pictures of home and then pictures of school. Okay. And, yeah, with dates and stuff, especially yeah. now that he's just gone back. So they sent home two calendars and we had to cross off the days till he went back to school. Right. And we had a yeah, social story to explain to him that he was, you know, he'd been home for a while, but now it's time to go back to school and, yeah, yeah what he was going to do at school and stuff. So, you know, they, they were really helpful with that. And I guess with people with autism, it, it is um, more having a, a sort of a structure so that they know what they're working by and what's coming up rather than just spur-of-the-moment things. Yeah, exactly. So the time that he was away from school because of the COVID-19, we had a whiteboard in our kitchen and we would put a visual schedule on there every day as to what his day looked like. And we called it dad's school. Okay. So, <laughs> so, you know, it would have a visual, you know, breakfast, get dressed, and then we're going to do some schoolwork, then go for a walk, then come back and do some more schoolwork. Just yep. so he knew what the day looked like. And every morning it was funny he would, you know, come out into the kitchen and he would actually look at the whiteboard. Oh, that's great. Yeah, to see what the day was for him. And, you know, I think it worked really well. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, look. Yeah. He, I mean, I mean, he's not the only one. I mean, just children had a problem with knowing what to do each day because there was no school. Um, so yeah. it sounds like he coped really well with it. Yeah, he did actually. I was very lucky. I know, you know, working with mums that have kids with autism and stuff. I know that a lot of their kids struggled with the change, and you know, it was very hard for them. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I'm really grateful that he did actually adjust to the routine at home. And how do you think supports or things around autism have changed since you first found out that your son had autism? Do you think, I mean, what are the things that have got better? Is there more understanding of general people? Is there more support? Is there more assistance? What is there out there now? I think there's definitely more understanding. I remember, you know, when Jet was first diagnosed and taking him down the street at, you know, when he was, I think, about four years old and people looking at me when he'd have a meltdown and judging me. Yeah. And um, it was really funny. My auntie brought a T-shirt and it said, I'm autistic, stop staring. Yeah. And um, I thought I'll, I'll put it on him just to see. Oh, I thought you thought, thought for you. <laughs> no, no, for my son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, so I put it on him and I went down the street and um, he was having one of his meltdowns because I didn't realise at that time he was um, having sensory overload due yeah. to the lighting and the noise yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And um, a couple of ladies looked at him and read his T-shirt and they nodded and smiled at me. Oh, that's thought, good. <laughs> yeah. I thought, okay, well then obviously they've realised that he does have autism and it's not just a meltdown. And yeah, not, not just a temper boy. tantrum. But I think there is a lot more understanding, probably still not to a, where I would like it to be. Yeah. Um, as far as I guess it, the services, is, it's different for everybody. I think, you know, being in the disability field, parents that where there's only one person instead of two, I think it's a bigger struggle than for families where there's a husband and wife. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
because you sort of have each other to, okay, I need a break now, so I'm just going to go out for half an hour or whatever. Whereas I find that um, single mums or dads would struggle a lot more because they don't sometimes get that chance. This is what I've been, you know, what I've witnessed being a support coordinator. They don't have that chance to actually... um, Just take 10 minutes out. Yeah, just to leave. Like, you know, I've had, you know, a few mums ringing me up in tears and saying I can't even go to the toilet just to have a bit of me time. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that would be, you know, extremely hard, I think, especially when they've got more than one child that's on the spectrum. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, if you had someone with autism and, say, one or two other children and you're trying to homeschool all of them and you're on your own, that would be a nightmare. Yeah, well, I had one mum, she has three children with autism. Oh, my God. And one that doesn't. So, yeah, she was trying to homeschool all of those and all the, the her children and she found it very hard, So, which is totally understandable. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think the thing that sort of grates me with one of the NDIS statements, and I've even put that in, you know, a report to them, yeah. <laughs> is that it's the parent's responsibility. Like, you know, I get that it is our responsibility to a point, but when you have a single mother or father that has no informal supports except for themselves and they're trying to, you know, get through every day, I think they need more support. And it didn't used to be like that, did it, before NDIS, because the government would help. More, yeah. wouldn't they? Wouldn't they give a bigger package? And oh, I don't know, maybe they didn't with autism, but saying that it's the parent's responsibility. Well, it's the parent's responsibility to a certain degree, but you shouldn't be expecting the parent to be, a, especially if you have two or three with autism, it shouldn't be the parent's full responsibility on their own to look after them. Because if the parent was to say, I can't do this anymore and walk out, then the government would have 100% responsibility. Yeah, exactly right. So and, surely um, it's to the the government's, uh, it's to their advantage to give a bit more support so that that person can carry on and doesn't feel overwhelmed and feels like they've got support and people around them to help them because otherwise you just go, you take it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I agree totally. But it's pretty much their their statement for anybody under the age of, you know, 15, 16. That's terrible. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, even with my son's plan review meeting, you know, I said I need help because, you know, my son's got to be at his bus stop at this time and my daughter's got to be at school at this time. I can't be in two places at one time. Yeah. And she said, but you chose to work. So what does she expect you to do, just sit at home (laughs) on no money? And I said, "Um, I don't think anybody chooses to work really. Yeah, you work out of necessity. Yeah, that's right. I said, I don't, you know, if I had a choice, I wouldn't be working. Yeah. I would, you know, be there for my kids. Um, but, yeah, so, and when I sort of said that, she sort of backed down a bit. But, you know, as far as that goes, I think that's the big, one of the biggest hurdles with the NDIS and that's them just assuming that anyone has a child with a disability under the age of, you know, 15, 16. Should be at home. responsibility. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not NDIS. As but especially. going back on that where she said to you, it's your choice to work, it's also the choice and control of the participant to have that extra funding, to have extra supports so that they can lead their life they need to. 
Yes, correct. Yeah. So in so actual fact, they're, they're, they're saying one thing, but then, you know, they're saying another because they're saying it's your choice to go to work and your son needs more help. But for your son, your son needs more choice and control over his life, which would mean I need more support. I need more help. So my mum can continue to work and I can continue to do what I need to do. Yeah, that's correct. But that, that's they don't look at it like that for no, each child. because it doesn't the suit them. 15. Yeah, like they don't have choice and control at that age. No. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> so how do you manage to, say, to stay positive? I guess, you know, I can't say I'm positive all the time. Yeah. I have my down days. But I guess on those down days I always think to myself that there's someone else out there that's worse off than me. You know, I'm pretty you know, grateful that even though my son's autistic, he's healthy, yep. you know, he's happy. Um, you know, there's other people out there that children have got cancer and yep. things like that, which would be terrible. Um, so I guess when I'm ever I'm feeling down, I just feel grateful for what I have. Yeah, so, and that he's healthy yeah. and happy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and as you know, said before, when he was younger, you were told he'd be nonverbal and now he does use a few words and gestures, I guess. So that at least gives you a way of communicating. Yeah, exactly. Like he came home from, he wears a pillow pet on his head yep. and he left it at school yesterday and he came home and he said, where's my pillow pet gone? And I just looked at him and went, what? He just said a whole sentence like <laughs> out of nowhere. I was dumbfounded. And, um, yeah, I just said to him, oh, you've left it at school. Um, but, yeah, just little things like that, you know, you just don't expect it. And then just out of the blue he'll just come out with. That must you know, be amazing. Yeah, I remember um, his first year at school, he, um, he they, they have a concert and, um, you know, they put a microphone on the stage when his class was coming out and I said to my husband, oh, I wonder who's going to sing in his grade. Yeah. Anyway, his grade came out and he picked up, my son picked up the microphone. Yeah. And he sang a whole song. Wow. From start to finish. I know I was a mess. I was bawling my eyes out. <laughs> and I said to my husband, I'm glad you taped it because I don't really remember seeing what he was doing. But he was, you know, walking around the whole stage, putting his head back. and Wow. Yeah. So it was just amazing. And is that really the first time you'd heard him sing? Yeah, definitely. Like in front of the huge audience, like wow. the parents were there and <laughs> a full song and doing actions and yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. Wow, that's incredible. And you just fell apart, obviously. Yeah, I did. (laughs) (laughs) I did. (laughs) Um, So what do you think your biggest accomplishment in your life is so far? I think, I guess, well, being a parent is a huge accomplishment. Yeah. But I think um, staying positive and... Um, doing the best that I can. Yep. Uh, yeah. That, you know, with everything, I guess, in life and what things have to throw at you. So, yeah. And and I think what I find when I have spoken to you in the past is that um, you, you're not judgmental on yourself. You you take things in your stride and you go with them. You don't sort of, well, I mean, I haven't known you to go, oh, I shouldn't have done this and I shouldn't have done that. You, you seem to work things through and move on with them. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I believe I do that. I had um, one of my 
um, participants emailed me yesterday and said, oh, he said something about you don't give up to you, you've tried. And I guess throughout life I've never given up. I've kept on trying until I've achieved what I've had to achieve. Yeah. Or even, you know, putting something together, it can frustrate me to no end, but I have to complete it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, definitely. Yeah. And I guess that's with anything. If You know, if I can't find a service for someone, I have to keep looking until I find that service that's going to suit the person. So you've definitely got perseverance. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so um, where do you think you'll be in five years' time? I'd hope to s- still be where I am now still being a support coordinator and still working with families and, you know, helping them with their services and, you know, just being that person that they can ring up if they just need a chat or, you know, they need help with a service. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd still like to be, you know, being a support coordinator. And this is a question I ask everyone. What do you think the most common reason is for people failing or giving up? I guess life it throws some really hard things your way and sometimes it's really, I mean, you know, I've been there too sometimes. Yep. It's hard to just think that, you know, that it's going to change. And, you know, even with my daughter, she's going through a rough stage now and both my daughters do, they stress about stuff that hasn't even happened yet. Yep. So I guess, you know, if you stop stressing about what hasn't what hasn't happened yeah. until it actually happens, yeah. I think that makes a huge difference. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, because, um, yeah, mind you, I guess I wouldn't have done that years ago and I think it's a part of <laughs> <laughs> I would have probably. So do you think you were the same too, back then when, when yeah. you were younger? Yeah, when I was younger. But I think, you know, as you get older, you realise that there's no – point in stressing about stuff that hasn't happened unless it actually happens yeah and um a huge thing i've learned is um just feeling negative and animosity towards someone it it doesn't get you anywhere it just consumes you so much so it's better just okay well that person is not suitable to me they're upsetting me too much i'm just going to walk away yeah Whereas, you know, years ago I would just let that eat at me and eat at me and eat at me. And, look, I think there's a stage in your life where I can't actually tell you what age I was, but I'd say around 30, 35 when you start going, why am I worried about all this stuff? You know, it's almost like you go into a new chapter of your life and you realise that all that small stuff and some big stuff that you, as you said, really panicked about before it happened. And when it actually happened, it wasn't so bad but you spent a month, two months worrying about, oh, my God, this is coming up, this is coming up, this is coming up. And then when it did come up, you go, oh, actually, that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. But we still kept yeah. doing it until we hit a certain age and then we start going, why am I worried about it? And then you might worry about it the day before or a couple of hours before it happens, but not for a prolonged amount of time like we did when we were younger. Yeah, exactly. So like having this talk with you, I probably wouldn't have slept for the, <laughs> a couple of nights a couple of years ago, but I've just felt sick in the stomach for the last two hours before. So, <laughs> so I've improved quite a bit. <laughs> you have. That's amazing. 
<laughs> that's good. Yeah. No, and that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Because someone else I spoke to a little while ago, a few days before they rang me and they said, I don't know why I'm doing this interview. I don't know why you find me interesting. And I said, because you've got a story to tell and those stories are important. And she went, oh, okay. And then I spoke to her this morning and she said, I'm okay with doing the interview tonight now. And I went, great. That's fantastic. So <laughs> she'd got over it a couple of days before and you'd got over it a couple of hours before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But I think also that that's sort of um, uh, like normal worry, like that's just normal stress and worry because it's just coming up to it, to the time you're going to do something. And, and that must be, no, well, that is normal, you know, but, you know, when we're younger and we worry for two weeks ahead or a month ahead, you know, why do we worry so much? We must spend so much time when we're in our 18, 19, 20s going, oh, my God, this is coming up and I, I don't know what to do. And if we spent less time, we'd probably have a more enjoyable childhood. Yes. Not that I didn't have an enjoyable childhood. <laughs> I did too, but, you know, you, you do, you worry so much. Yeah. yeah. Spend too much time worrying. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, that's it, Amanda. That was a fantastic talk. Thank you so much for talking about what you do and with support coordination and with your son. That's really informative, and I hope that helps some people who are listening. Thank you. All right. I'll speak to you again soon. All right. Thank you, Dan. Bye. Bye. Uh, so if you would like to contact me, you can contact me at lifechangesyou.com.au, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, enjoy all that life has to offer. Look after each other. Bye-bye.